Hello. Uh, unfortunately, we uh, failed to record the sermon properly uh, on Sunday morning. Uh, so this is a re-recording of the sermon I gave yesterday morning. Sometimes you need to hear something more than once for it to sink in. Um, early last year, I decided to take the plunge and finally read Pickwick Papers by Charles Dickens. It's not his most famous novel. It's not his best. And it's certainly not his shortest. But I wanted to tick it off the list. So I trudged through the 600 or so pages. It had its moments, but I wouldn't say I loved it. Anyway, I proudly got to the end after about six weeks, and only to see a couple of months later on my uh, Facebook memories page a quote from Pickwick Papers from about four years ago. Evidently, this was not the first time I had read Pickwick Papers. Sometimes you need to hear something more than once for it to sink in. And we return this morning to our series on the first half of Mark's Gospel after a break for World Mission Sunday last week. And we're now almost at the halfway point in Mark's Gospel, that famous glorious moment in chapter 8, verse 30, where Peter realises and acknowledges who Jesus is, the Messiah, and where Jesus predicts his death for the first time. But this morning, we're not quite there yet. Uh, we're in the first half of chapter 8, where we see a feeding of a lot of people with bread and fish. Ringing any bells? Well, on a first reading, this account seems to be almost exactly the same as what we saw in chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000, doesn't it? Except a bit less impressive, if anything, as Jesus fed 5,000 people there, but only 4,000 here. You know, it's a bit like that person who can do a really good card trick, but then just can't quite do it as well again a second time. Now, given that Mark is the shortest of the four Gospels, and his narrative style is pretty concise, why, we might reasonably be thinking, do we need to hear about the feeding of the 4,002? Great, Jesus fed another crowd. Lucky them. But why do we need to know? Let's delve into the passage now and see if we can see why Mark felt that we needed to hear about this second miracle that was so similar to the one that he described in detail just two chapters earlier. And as we delve, we will see, I hope, an extraordinary miracle and two responses to it. First, the miracle. Jesus compassionately and abundantly provides for his people. Verses 1 to 9. Jesus compassionately and abundantly provides for his people. It's um, tempting, isn't it, to gloss over quite familiar passages like this. But let's take some time together now to have a really close look at what actually happened at this miracle. You might want to um, flick a little bit between uh, Mark 8 and Mark 6 as we compare. And the first thing to notice is where Jesus is. Now, it doesn't tell us in our passage, but um, the last location that was mentioned in chapter 7, verse 31, was Decapolis, on the eastern side of the Lake of Galilee, which was Gentile territory. And Jesus came there from Tyre in chapter 7, verse 24, which was also Gentile territory. And before that, in um, chapter 7, verses 1 to 23, he was in Jerusalem. So Jesus is in Gentile territory now, for the first time in Mark's Gospel, I think. And we have a little sequence here, from 7, verse 24, through to 8, verse 9, of three miracles Jesus performed in this Gentile territory. Miracles 2 and 4 are people who weren't from a Jewish background. 
who hadn't been born into God's chosen people. Uh, Number one, he cast out the demon out of the Syrophoenician woman's daughter in 724 to 30. Number two, he healed a man who was deaf and mute in 731 to 37. And number three, this one, he fed these 4,000 people. And this is a significant thing to note, this different setting. You see, Jesus may have done pretty much the same thing as he did in chapter 6. In fact, Jesus did do exactly the same thing that he did in chapter 6. But he did it for a very different group of people. He did it for the Gentiles, for the outsiders to God's people. Don't underestimate the importance of that difference. And similarly to the feeding of the 5,000, the people have been with Jesus for some time, three days, if you look down in verse 2. But surprisingly, Mark doesn't even mention Jesus' teaching here. I wonder whether you noticed. Instead, we get an even greater focus than we had with the 5,000 on Jesus' compassion. Read verses 2 to 3 with me. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way, because some of them have come a long distance. But notice that where with the 5,000, Jesus' compassion was for a people who needed teaching, here his compassion is for a people who needed feeding. Maybe there's a link. Also, although the disciples do ask Jesus a question in verse 4, we get less dialogue between Jesus and the disciples than with the 5,000. Jesus seems to be getting on with it himself here, rather than demanding action from the disciples. He's directing rather than responding to events, uh, one commentator put it. And again, like with the 5,000, we have the crowd sitting down, Jesus giving thanks, and the disciples distributing the bread among them to the tune of basketful after basketful of leftovers. And let's just pause for a moment there to imagine the scene. So you're one of this huge crowd gathered to listen to this incredible man. You've been there for days. You're excited, you're exhausted, you're hungry. From a distance, as you squint, you see Jesus holding up what looks like a pretty decent packed lunch, for one, a family at a push. And he breaks the bread, you see, and he gives what can't be much more than a handful to each disciple. And off they go, starting to give it out. But it's never going to get to you, you think. There's no way that there will be enough. And yet, as you wait and watch, sure enough, a disciple reaches you, still with bread. And you take an armful, enough to feed not just you, but your whole family sitting there with you. And then this disciple goes to the group behind you, with bread for them too. And a few hours later, just as you're about to head home, you turn around to see the disciple standing with Jesus again, with the baskets of leftovers that they've picked up from the ground as the crowd was heading home. Seven basketfuls. Seven loaves shed. Seven basketfuls left over. Incredible, you say to yourself. Incredible. You've never seen anything like it. Jesus compassionately and abundantly provided for his people. And brothers and sisters, Jesus has compassionately and abundantly provided for us. It's a subtle difference. But I wonder whether you noticed that Jesus' method in this miracle It's slightly different to when he fed the 5,000. When feeding the 5,000, Jesus told the disciples to sit the people in groups 
took the loaves and fish and looked up to heaven, gave thanks and broke the loaves and divided the fish, and then gave the loaves and fish to his disciples to distribute. But when feeding the 4,000, Jesus himself took the, told the crowd to sit down, gave thanks for just the loaves and broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute. Then, almost as an afterthought in verse 7, he gave thanks for the fish and gave them to his disciples to distribute as well. Why leave the fish till afterwards, Jesus? Did he just forget about them? Why focus our attention first on just the bread? Maybe it's just an incidental detail. Maybe. But I think there might be something more here. Especially as Jesus' compassion, as we noted earlier, with the 4,000, is for people who needed feeding, not a people who needed teaching. I want to suggest that if at the feeding of the 5,000 we were supposed to look back to God's people gathered in the wilderness after the exodus, being taught the law by Moses and miraculously being fed by bread from heaven, as Dave taught us three weeks ago, well, perhaps at the feeding of the 4,000 we're supposed to look forwards, forwards to a time when Jesus will break bread to feed his followers again, a time which will prepare the way for the Gentiles to come to God too, a time which will itself point forward to another time when the bread of life himself will be broken as he hangs on the cross. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has compassionately and abundantly provided for us. For he's provided for us, not just loaves of bread to feed a family. He's provided his body, his very life, to feed us for eternity. And surely Mark draws our attention to Jesus' compassion for the crowd here to help us realise how great his compassion for us is and how helpless, hungry and hopeless we are, not just physically, but spiritually. When we were beaten, broken, exhausted, on the point of collapse, limping through life, starved by our sin, utterly unable to feed or help ourselves, God saw us. He loved us, he had compassion on us, and he sent us the food we need, his son, whose body was broken in two like a loaf of bread for us. And how abundant this gift was. For this loaf of bread I'm holding up now, it isn't enough and it won't last. It will satisfy you for a meal, maybe a few, It'll keep you full for the rest of the day, maybe even tomorrow. But in a few days from now, you'll be hungry. And by this time next week, you'll be starving if this bread was all you had to feed on. And don't think that you can keep some of it back, because it won't last. It'll be all right for five days, maybe a week. After a week, it will start to go stale. By ten days, you'll be able to see the mould. Two weeks, and it'll be blue with mould. Four weeks, and it'll be black. This piece of bread isn't enough, and it won't last. But the bread Jesus provides, Jesus' body broken to feed us, it will satisfy us forever. I am the bread of life, Jesus said, John 6 verse 35. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. Suddenly, seven basketfuls of leftovers doesn't seem quite so impressive. 
for the bread Jesus gives us will last into eternity. God has compassionately and abundantly provided for us by sending his son to have his body broken for us. Many of you will know that around 18 months ago, Sarah Phillips, one of our church members, lost her father to cancer. After an out of the blue diagnosis, aged just 61. But that final year, she later wrote, he found to be the best of his life. Why? How could that possibly be the case? Well, because in his suffering, in his helplessness, in his hopelessness, he came to rely on Jesus. After years of Christian faith, he looked at the gospel with new eyes. He realised that Jesus was what he needed and was all he needed. He found the joy of feeding on Jesus and he knew that though he would soon no longer feed on physical bread, he would be feeding on Jesus for the rest of eternity. And of course, this is also our prayer for our dear sister Gwyneth as she now walks this same road and indeed for all of us, as we live in a world of suffering and encounter trials. Sarah's father knew that God had compassionately and abundantly provided for him. And that was a tremendous source of joy, hope and courage to him. So we've seen an extraordinary miracle, a miracle in which Jesus compassionately and abundantly provides for his people. The rest of the passage gives us two responses to it. The first response, the Pharisees for whom it will never be enough. The Pharisees for whom it will never be enough. So the Pharisees come to meet Jesus as he and his disciples land in the region of Dalmanutha. Look down in verse 10. And neither they nor Mark, as he tells it, pull any punches here. And they begin to question Jesus. So verse 11, why? To test him. And what is it that they request? Verse 11, they asked for a sign from heaven. Now, these men are not innocently examining Jesus here, seeking to find out more about him, to give them genuine confidence in him, as Luke records John the Baptist's disciples doing in Luke chapter 7. No, they are on the attack. They're here to test him, and their aim is to discredit him. So they ask for a sign from heaven. Proof. A clear indication from God that Jesus is his man. Well, it may not seem like an unreasonable request on the face of it, but where have they been for everything that has happened in Mark's gospel so far? Had they not heard about the Spirit descending on him and the Father blessing him at his baptism? It was an incredible sign from heaven. Had they not heard about his rebuffing of Satan's attempts to defeat him in the wilderness? It was an incredible sign from heaven. Had they not heard or at least heard of Jesus' astonishingly authoritative teaching. It was an incredible sign from heaven. Had they not heard of Jesus' amazing acts against nature, sin, sickness, demons and death? They were incredible signs from heaven. Now they had not yet heard of this miracle Jesus had just performed on the other side of the lake. But would it have made any difference? I think the reason these accounts are side by side is to make us see that no sign would have been enough for these Pharisees to believe. This Jesus would never have been enough for them. 
They're, uh, they're a bit like the canny Richard Dawkins disciple, aren't they? Who turns up at the university CU evangelistic event, doesn't pay the slightest bit of attention to the talk, and then asks their pre-prepared, controversial question in an attempt to catch the speaker out. But just as they pull no punches with Jesus, Jesus pulls no punches with them. Down at verse 12, he sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly I tell you, no sign will be given to it. The word translated sighed deeply refers to your entrails. With a wrench from his gut, Jesus answers them, barely finding the words to answer such an empty question. Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly I tell you, no sign will be given to it. No sign will be given to it. As the disciples and the Gentiles across the lake are still taking in this extraordinary sign Jesus has just performed amongst them, here is Jesus now telling the Pharisees, telling this generation, the Pharisees and all the people they represent, who've seen seven chapters of Jesus' anointing, authority, preaching and miracles, but have failed to repent, that for them there will be no sign. No concessions, no explanations. No attempts to persuade, no exhortations to believe, just no sign. And then verse 13, he left them. Now these words, he left them, are stronger than we might first realise. The Greek here doesn't simply mean moved away, it means walked away, dismissed, abandoned. Jesus' movement in these three simple words is profound and it is definitive. For this is the last time in Mark's Gospel that Jesus will engage directly with the Pharisees. The Pharisees, indeed this generation, have failed to repent and turn to Jesus. So now he turns away from them. He turns away from the Pharisees for whom he will never be enough. For Jesus longs for everyone to follow him. God our Saviour wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth, 1 Timothy 2. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, Jesus' words in Matthew 11. Jesus longs for all to be saved, but he will not pursue people forever. He does not run after people like the Pharisees here or the rich young ruler of Mark 10, begging them to follow him, pleading that they would trust him, desperately trying to persuade them to give him one more chance. No. We heard it in the parable of the sower in Mark 4 a few weeks ago. And here we see it acted out in real life. Some will hear the word, accept it and produce great fruit. Others will hear the word, accept it for a while and appear to grow fruit. And still others will hear the word, refuse to accept it, and it will be stolen away from them. And Jesus will let that happen. He will let that seed be stolen away. Response number one to this extraordinary miracle, the Pharisees, for whom Jesus will never be enough. Maybe you're not a Christian this morning. Maybe you feel Jesus hasn't made himself clear enough. I'll believe when, I'd believe if. Well, let me urge you, 
When will that be? When will you believe? What will it take? Because Jesus says that there will be no sign for this unbelieving generation. If you're waiting for absolute, 100%, guaranteed, undeniable proof of the truth of Christianity, you'll be waiting a long time. So stop waiting. Look at the incredible signs Jesus has already given us. Look into the cross in earnest for yourself. Read Jesus' words in the Bible for yourself and be convinced. For Jesus says there'll be no sign for this unbelieving generation. And if you are a Christian this morning, is there not a degree to which, brothers and sisters, we do this too? We set the terms for how God should reveal himself to us. And we're unhappy if he doesn't reveal himself how we want him to. I think of the Christian teenager, angry at God for not making himself clearer to her non-Christian friends. Why couldn't God do something really big and dramatic? Then they would all believe. I think of the young Christian man or woman, desperate to go into ministry or out onto the mission field, reluctant to listen to the wisdom of his or her pastors and elders who aren't so sure, desperately trying to find any and every Bible verse that could justify their call to ministry or mission. I think of the older couple whose son has fallen away from the faith and chosen a very different path to the pattern of sexual relationships set out in the Bible. And this older couple suddenly find themselves now tempted to write off as cultural biblical teaching that before they would have said was universal. And let me give a personal example. At the start of this year, I was having quite a tough time in my former job as a teacher. Their management had been very heavy-handed, I felt, in the way they'd introduced a new method of teaching writing. And they'd been very harsh to teachers in the feedback they'd given on lesson observations. As a key stage leader, I'd, I tried to raise my concerns about the way feedback was, was being given and how my team of teachers were feeling, but I was shot down. And I tell you, I poured the scriptures for verses, passages that would tell me to stand up for myself. Uh, to fight our corner, to call out the injustice, to shout and storm in righteous fury. But do you know what I found? Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ, Ephesians 6, verse 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eyes are on you and to curry their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord, Colossians 3, verse 22. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they're conscious of God. 1 Peter 2, verse 18 to 19. What I wanted to do, what, uh, what I wanted to find was fight, defend, stand up, rage. But what I found was submit, obey, bear up. And it was a great challenge to me to submit to what God had actually said in his word, rather than to continue in my pride and argue what I wanted him to have said. Response number one to this extraordinary miracle, the Pharisees, for whom Jesus will never be enough. Response number two, the disciples who still don't understand. Jesus gets back in the boat, verse 13, and crosses back to the other side of the lake again. And we breathe a sigh of relief. 
A bit like when the candidates on the BBC's are The Apprentice who haven't been fired are ushered out of the boardroom and back to the house at the end of the episode. We breathe a sigh of relief. We're out of the danger zone with the Pharisees. We're back in the boat with the disciples. Hazard identified and dodged, we're on safe ground again. Except the atmosphere in the boat isn't entirely one of calm. Uh, for look at verse 14. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Having spent probably hours feeding the crowds, the disciples don't seem to have had much to eat themselves. And they're a bit anxious about this rookie error that they've made. At this moment, Jesus speaks up. Verse 15. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. This comment raises the pitch of their panic quite considerably. Verse 16. They discussed this with one another and said, it's because we have no bread. Oh no, Jesus has found them out. He spotted the shambles going on in the back of the boat and he's calling them out on it. You can imagine them squirming, each one hoping to avoid the blame falling on him. But, verse 17, aware of their discussion, Jesus hits them with a question. And not just one question, but question after question after question after question. Feel the weight of them as I read. Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Do you still not understand? Silence in the boat. Maybe Jesus wasn't talking about the fact that they'd forgotten to bring a picnic lunch. You can hear the waves lapping against the sides of the boat as the stunned silence lingers on. No one knows what to say. Everyone's trying not to make eye contact with Jesus. We were supposed to breathe a sigh of relief. After the attack of the unbelieving Pharisees, Jesus was back in the boat with his disciples. The seed that fell on the good soil of Mark 4, surely. But these disciples seem no better than the Pharisees. No more able to understand. No more able to see Jesus for who he is. With hearts that are no softer, eyes that are no more open. And what a shock this must have been to the first hearers of Mark's gospel. To see the gun turn so dramatically on Jesus' own followers. If this is the state they're in, what chances there for the rest of us? But before we totally write off these uh, foolish disciples, let's just consider for a moment how the disciples and the Pharisees are similar and how they are different. Now, the disciples may not, like the Pharisees, fully understand Jesus' work and words, but they do seem to want to. Notice that in his many questions, not once does Jesus ask the question, do you still not believe? No, he asks only, do you still not understand? Their problem is ignorance, not unbelief. And notice too that word still. Do you still not understand? They don't understand yet, and they should, but one day they will. Jesus may leave them with a difficult question, hanging in the air in verse 21. But he does not yet get out of the boat and leave them as he did the Pharisees. 
there is still hope for these disciples. And we know from the rest of Mark's gospel and from the book of Acts and the epistles, the extraordinary faith God blessed these disciples with in the end. Response number two, the disciples who still don't understand. And brothers and sisters, I wonder whether we as Christians can sometimes be blissfully unaware of how little we know of God and his word, how little we actually understand. I think of the junior church teacher struggling to explain what they thought was a simple concept, one they'd uh, learned years ago themselves, as familiar as familiar can be. And here they are, struggling to think and explain what these concepts actually mean to the group of children sat before them. I think of a Christian who's been a Christian for years. The Gospels, the letters, the Psalms, they love them. They could give you the basics on Genesis right through to 2 Samuel. They even know a bit of Isaiah and Ezekiel. But the minor prophets... Um, can't remember when I last read them. I think of the Christian suddenly hit by hardship at work or home, but unaware of what the Bible has to say about it. They know the Bible talks about enduring trials. They just haven't really ever thought or studied those parts. I wonder whether we Christians can sometimes be blissfully unaware of how little we know of God and his word, blind to our ignorance, even complacent in it. I must admit, when I saw that our sermon series this term would be on Mark, there was a part of me that thought, oh, Mark, great. It's so familiar. I've read Mark lots of times. I thought I knew it pretty well. Well, I can say that after the eight or so weeks that we've had in Mark so far, I think I've learned more of Jesus and his glory than I have from a sermon series for a long time. We can sometimes be blissfully unaware of how little we know of God and his word. Response number two to this extraordinary miracle, the disciples who still don't understand. So where does all this leave us? We've seen an extraordinary miracle in which Jesus compassionately and abundantly provides for his people. And we've seen two far from exemplary responses, the Pharisees for whom Jesus still isn't enough and the disciples who still don't understand. So what hope is there for us? If even the disciples, after seven chapters of anointing authority, preaching and miracles, still didn't understand, what hope is there for us? Well, I think to answer that question, we must step outside our passage and look a little before and a little after it. In Mark 7, verses 31 to 37, and Mark 8, verses 22 to 26, we see two extraordinary miracles. At the end of Mark 7, Jesus heals a man brought to him who was deaf and could hardly talk, verse 32 tells us. Jesus took this man aside, away from the crowd, put his fingers into the man's ears, spat and touched the man's tongue, looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said, be opened. And suddenly the man could hear and speak again, in verse 35. And in the middle of Mark 8, we see Jesus heal another man who was brought to him, a blind man, verse 22. Jesus took the man by the hand and led him outside the village. He spat on the man's eyes and put his hands on him. The man could then see partially, so Jesus put his hands on the man's eye once more. And his eyes were opened, verse 25. And he saw everything clearly. Did you catch that? Let me read it again. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes, then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. 
back to verse 17, do you still not see or understand? Verse 18, do you have eyes but fail to see? Brothers and sisters, it is only by an eye-opening miracle from God that we can understand Jesus. It is only by an eye-opening, ear-unstopping, heart-softening miracle by Jesus in our hearts that we can understand Jesus and feed on him and eat the bread that leads to eternal life. Without an internal miracle from Jesus, we do not stand a chance of understanding him. Without a miracle from Jesus in our hearts, we'll be no better than the Pharisees who didn't want, want to know and understand. And we'll be no better than the disciples who wanted to understand but just couldn't seem to get it. Those disciples, at 8 verse 21, needed Jesus to do a miracle in their hearts. And so do we. Fortunately, he is compassionate and he is willing. Let me read from Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 to 28. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will give you a new heart, says God. We need an eye-opening miracle from God so that we can understand and feed on Jesus, our compassionate, abundant provider, and eat his bread that lasts for eternity. If you're not yet a Christian, be warned. You will never get there on your own. You will never find your own way to heaven. You cannot give yourself a new heart. Come to Jesus to get that new heart. Eat his bread, the bread that satisfies forever. If you're a Christian already, remember, remember that this is what God has done in your heart already and praise him for it. And remember that this is what he is still doing. Rely on him to keep your heart soft and your eyes and ears open to him and keep eating his bread. Don't be tempted to go back and eat the yeast of the Pharisees. Why, when you've tasted the bread that leads to eternal life, would you go back to eating anything else? Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for how he compassionately and abundantly provided for these people here. Thank you for how he's compassionately and abundantly provided for us. Not just loaves of bread, but his body, the bread of life, broken on the cross to feed us and satisfy us for all of eternity. Continue to work your miracle of softening our hearts, of opening our eyes and ears, that we may feed on Jesus till the day we die. Amen.